0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now.
1: Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Ellen Bois, who is Distinguished Research Professor of History at UCLA. She's one of the country's most eminent scholars of women's history. In the women's suffrage movement of the United States. Among her many books and articles is Suffrage Women's Long Battle for the Vote, published in 2020 by Simon Schuster. The book was written with an eye toward the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment, whose adoption was certified on August 26, 1920. To remind ourselves, this is what the 19th Amendment says Quote, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation," unquote. So this amendment provided formal enfranchisement for women in this country, but it has not provided equal access to women to the political process. We've never had a woman president, nor a woman vice president, though that could change in some three months in the person of Kamala Harris. Where have we been and where are we going? To help us answer these questions, we're delighted to have Ellen Bois with us. Welcome, Ellen.
2: This is what, what what the subject could be more appropriate to, to the Luskin Center than celebrating uh, the enfranchisement of women at a time when uh, women's votes may well change or correct the course of history.
1: Okay, well, let's uh, try and dig dig into that. Let's begin, perhaps, with a bit of a foray into the past. So I took a recent cross-country trip, and I passed by Seneca Falls, New York, which is where the first chapter of your book begins in July 1848. Can you explain to us what the significance of Seneca Falls is, and especially the powerful declaration that you reprint at the back of your book?
2: Well, as you saw, Seneca Falls is a small industrial city right off of uh, the Erie Canal, sort of midway between Syracuse and Rochester. It was an area that was called at the time the burned over district, not because there were fires like in California, but because both religious and political movements roared through the area. 1848 is a really important year. It's a world historic year. There are revolutions all over, all over Europe to demand political rights, basic political rights. Uh, in the United States, uh, all white, pretty much all white men could vote, uh, but as we know, uh, no slaves, many, many free black men, and all women were deprived of the vote. So this, uh, this movement in Seneca Falls One could call it uh, one of the revolutions of 1848. Uh, In the United States, it focused on women. It's also important that that year, if we look in American history, it was the end of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, It had, or not the Mexican Revolution, please, excuse me, the Mexican American War. It had added much of Northern Mexico to the United States. And in doing so, it had broken open the issue of slavery into American politics, where it had been kept out by very high walls. Uh, From 1848 to 1861, the issue grew and grew. And um, starting in 1848, a series of new political parties, the first one's very small, and by 1854, the third or fourth, was the Republican Party, a brand new party that blasted into history and within six years had elected a president. In this environment, um, the organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention, and especially Elizabeth Stanton, understood how important political rights were for women to join in the, uh, in the, in the changes of history, uh, not to stay on the outside, and also women to gain any of the uh, goals that they had, which ranged from educational to economic to political rights.
1: So you hinted just now at a connection between uh, the abolition movement and the suffrage movement, two of the most important movements for justice in the United States in the 19th century. Was that a mere coincidence in time, or is there uh, a causal connection that we can uh, excavate?
2: Um, You know, we know, um, those of us who think about these issues, uh, that race and gender are constantly intertwined. Um, You know, uh, all races involve women and women involve all races. Uh, Through the long history of the suffrage movement, those 75 years, uh, the issue of race continues to complicate uh, the campaign for women's suffrage. At the beginning, through to uh, the uh, the high years of Reconstruction in the late 1860s and early 1870s, uh, the question of women's rights and then women's suffrage is completely bound up with abolition. Those first uh, uh, women's rights activists were, to a woman, abolitionists. They had learned, as they said, from the school of anti-slavery about human rights about the fact that um, as they would put it, uh, race and gender are mere matters of the surface. They don't address the deep uh, common human rights. We, we would put it differently, but that's the way they saw it. Uh, then in the, um, in the midst of the civil war, it was the women's rights activists, particularly Stanton and Anthony, little, little is known of this, they were really responsible for organizing the first popular movement for a constitutional amendment, and that was the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. Once slavery was abolished, the issue first of the citizenship of former slaves and then of their political rights was difficult to ignore. Um, uh, Right now, I'm not gonna talk about the 14th Amendment, which is incredibly important, but just about the 15th Amendment. Um, the 15th Amendment um, is sort of famous or infamous in suffrage history for excluding gender in its list of prohibited, uh, infran- uh, prohibited disfranchisements uh, and also causing a, um, um, a tragic break uh, between these heretofore sibling movements. Uh, the movement for black rights and the movement for women's rights. But I do want to point out a more um, positive connection, which is until the 15th Amendment is passed, the issue of of political rights is completely never included in any constitutional discussion or any national political discussion. Um, The issue of political rights is one that's addressed state by state. Alas, that is still the case for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be facing the uh, levels of, the various levels of uh, of um, voter suppression that we are. But in any case, the 15th Amendment brings the issue of uh, suffrage to the fore in women's rights and brings it to the federal and constitutional level. And at that point, especially once uh, women feel excluded or are excluded from the 15th Amendment. They put their energies into getting the right to vote into constitutional and federal levels.
1: Okay, I want to go back to this connection between uh, race and uh, and gender, women's rights, and uh, the abolition movement a little bit later. But um, you did mention uh, two of the seminal figures in the history of women's suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between them. Um, and I'm also curious how you greeted the news that uh, uh, that President Donald Trump is pardoning Susan B. Anthony for illegally voting in an election.
2: He pardoned her for voting. <laughs> um, I don't think Trump has any idea what Anthony, what her crime was. He is doing this because there's a small group that's. Uh, commandeered her name, called the woman, uh, Susan D. Anthony List, which is an anti-abortion group. He's doing it to benefit them and to act like he's doing something for the centennial. Um, She uh, was arrested for her insistence that by the Constitution as written, the 14th Amendment in particular, which said that all persons were citizens and all citizens had equal rights defended at the national level her insistence was voting was such a right had she had she and the other other women of her generation won that we would be in a very different place but voting is not considered is not established as a national right it is as the supreme court said in 1875 it is a privilege and it is a privilege controlled by the states Stanton and Anthony um, met in the early 1850s after the Seneca Falls Convention. They only lived about 50 miles from each other. Anthony lived in Rochester. Her family was uh, a big abolitionist family. Uh, Frederick Douglass was a guest at their dinner table often. Um, And um, Stanton and Anthony, they were very different. Well, in some ways they were very different. Uh, Anthony was a lifelong independent single woman. Uh, which was a very uh, rare phenomenon. Um, she was a lifelong in, uh, self-supporting woman, barely. She supported herself as a reformer. Uh, and Stanton was a married woman who uh, had seven children. It is interesting to remark, she was very healthy and also she believed in sort of progressive uh, health uh, uh, health uh, regimes. All of her seven children uh, survived and lived to infancy. I mean, to adulthood. Not very common. People, babies died a lot. Um, They became attached very, uh, very quickly and formed a political partnership that lasted uh, till the end of their lives in the early 20th century. It is just amazing. They Um, They had different roles and strengths. Anthony was a a consummate organizer. She sort of never stopped moving. Um, Her story has her first going from county to county in New York, and by the end, she's going on a train across the country to San Francisco and Los Angeles and Portland uh, and Denver, Um, whereas Stanton was the the thinker, uh, the writer, um, Stanton's writings are extraordinary. They, when you read them today, they sparkle with, uh, intelligence and, and are, you know, most 19th century writers, they're, they're sort of long, complicated sentences that are very flowery. And if you try to teach them, people won't listen to you. Um, uh, but Stanton is just uh, there's nothing like that about her. She, Her words and her ideas, it's unusual for me as a historian to say this, but they transcend history.
1: Um, and can you give us a sense of what some of the forces arrayed against uh, the movement uh, looked like um, at a political and social level? I mean, we have a sense now in uh, popular culture because of the series Mrs. America of what opposition looked like to the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, the the, the effort to bring forward the uh, equal right, to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in the person of Phyllis Schlafly and and others. What did it look like in the 19th century, in the time uh, immediately following Seneca Falls and into the early 20th century? Who were the forces in opposition?
2: Well, um, let me start by saying that um, unlike the battle to end the ERA or to stop the ERA, I do not think that a female opposition was a major phenomenon. There was an anti-suffrage movement. It had women in the front, but there weren't a lot of them. And in some ways they were a front for the men behind them. The fact that the ERA was stopped by a woman's movement is an ironic testimony to the power of woman suffrage. Women were uh, in a battle over abortion rights now. There are women arrayed on both sides and and politically, um, politically significant groups of women. Having said that, uh, of course there was uh, sexism coursing through the society. Um, The women's suffrage movement didn't spend too much time supporting women going into political office, which is something I think we'll talk about. Um, But uh, I would say that although there's a lot of, a, a tremendous amount of sexism, women are too emotional, they are not independently minded, they don't know anything about political issues, all of these things, I really don't think that's what stopped women's suffrage. There were two times in that long 75 years when a constitutional amendment might have happened, when there was a, um, a close chance. The first time that we talked about was in the late 60s and 70s, 1860s and 70s. You don't forgive me. I'm a 19th century star. <laughs> um,
1: uh,
2: the second time, which was the time that uh, it happened, was in the 1910s. In both of those times, these were periods of progressive political change, periods in which, to quote Elizabeth Stanton, the constitutional door was opened. There is no United States constitutional amendment between the 15th amendment in 1870 or 71 and the 16th amendment, which is in the early 20th century. So in both those those times, there are uh, political parties in power that we, have, we would call, historians would call, progressive. In the first period, that's the Republican Party, very different Republican Party, the party of Lincoln. In the teens, there is the Democratic Party run by Wilson. Now, we now know, uh, uh, because of Black Lives Matter, we now know that Wilson was a real opponent Uh, uh, of uh, a real, very hostile to racial equality. He was from Virginia. He was a Southern Democrat. Um, uh, So um, I I might come back to the early period, but looking at the 1910s, uh, Wilson was tremendously opposed, as was his party, to a constitutional amendment. And it's only when um, forces uh, uh, arrayed uh, in favor of a constitutional amendment in about starting in about 1918 that he gives in. Now, um, why, why are these political forces opposed? In general, um, political parties know they can't count on women's votes. Women's votes are half the population. They're, they're, they can't be marshaled uh, on behalf of one party or another. So there's no partisan advantage. Um, but the second reason in this period is that this party, the Democratic Party, as it existed in the 1910s, was a, a party was a party which was really still controlled by white supremacist forces in the South, and and these Southern states had worked so hard to deprive black men of the votes that they had won in the 1870s, they would be damned if they were going to open the door to black women who they knew were. Uh, sort of prepared and committed and organized and disciplined for voting, and they would be much more difficult to drive out of the electorate than Black men. So I would say that the political forces, it's often said that the political forces against women's suffrage are the sort of uh, uh, sexism in the society. I personally think after doing this book that the the forces against women's suffrage are political forces. These are men who run parties and who make political decisions. And uh, woman suffrage was not one that they were prepared to meet.
1: So let's reverse the coin. How then did the amendment pass? What were the forces that were mobilized to pass in the face of this extremely powerful opposition, including from Woodrow Wilson?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, Often uh, uh, when we look at the history of suffrage in this period, uh, we are very taken with the uh, the civil disobedience uh, in the uh, in 1916 and 1917. Women being the first uh, reform movement to picket the White House, which they did daily for uh, most of 1917. Uh, and uh, when the United States went to war, this picket this picket became. Uh, was accused of treason, and these women were thrown in jail. Some of them were force fed. Some of them were se- subjected to the kind of uh, psychiatric attacks that were familiar from the Stalin regime of people being um, put in um, in mental wards and being told they were crazy. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was a, another force that gets uh, less attention, which was an extraordinarily well-organized lobbying campaign. Lobbying already had a bad uh, reputation. These women formed what they called the front door lobby. And they um, brilliantly worked Congress from 1913 on. Uh, they, had, they had rules that we would uh, we should spread around again. Always knock on the door of the congressman, lest he something's going on in there that he doesn't want you to see. So don't walk in. Um, Go to the ladies room and write down all your notes immediately. Make friends with the secretary. Uh, And never, never close, the. never get angry. Uh, No matter what the person you're lobbying says, you don't want to close the door to the next person to come in. These are all brilliant. Um, I'm going to add one other force. In those years, in between the 1870s and the 1910s, the suffrage movement, which can't make any grounds federally in the U.S. Constitution, reverts to the states, which, as I've sort of indicated, actually had control over the right to vote. And they go into especially all of the Western states. And most of them, they succeed in uh, in campaigns to change state constitutions. Uh, You are in my hour, Luskin Center, California was the sixth state in which such a campaign was successful in 1911. Very, very um, uh, important state, not yet the California we know, but the second largest state in the West and very diverse and economically booming. Um, I must make an important point here. In each of these states, when when the Constitution of California and Colorado, et cetera, is amended and women get the right to vote, they get full voting rights. They are able to vote for their congresspeople and for president. So the women of California can start voting for president in 1912, eight years before the 19th Amendment is passed. What this means is that these states and the women in them who number something like 4 million by the middle of the 1910s are themselves a powerful force in favor of woman suffrage. Those states now, those congressional delegations have to pay attention to their women voters. Final point all of these states have been west of the Mississippi. In 1917, that campaign crosses the Mississippi and finally the large, the most populous and most powerful state in the union, New York, amends its constitution and its 40-something um, members of Congress now switch to the suffrage side. And it is that point in November 1917 when really the tide turns. Two months later, after 70 years, the House of Representatives passes the bill beginning the ratification process.
1: Thank you for that really concise um, uh, but elaborate uh, explanation of the forces uh, that allowed for the passage of the amendment. Um, I want to go back to something with which you begin uh, your book entitled Suffrage, um, which is um, an important point for you. uh, And that is that the women's suffrage movement was decidedly not racist in your view. And I mention this because there is uh, a bit of an historiographical debate around this question. Um, For example, a few days ago, the historian Martha Jones, a friend and colleague of yours, wrote an op-ed entitled Why I Won't Celebrate the Centennial of the 19th Amendment, in which she um, explained that, in her view, black women were left behind. So you know this question very well. Um, What's your what's your view of the matter?
2: I think that's not exactly what I said. I think that I said that the suffrage movement was not consistently racist or something like that. Okay, that is what I said. It's a long movement. Uh, We talked about it beginning in the abolitionist movement, but it goes massive in the Jim Crow era and into the years when, as I indicated, national politics are controlled by Southern Democrats. So the political eras are very, very different. Also, we're talking about three generations. So whereas the first generation uh, has uh, uh, really grows up in the school of anti-slavery, the second and third generations have no such connections to uh, movements for black equality or even to black woman suffragists. And um, they are there are moments, important moments where uh, Black women are literally pushed to the back uh, of, the, of the suffrage um, forces. Uh, at the national level, Black women uh, are really pretty invisible in these Wilson Democratic years. But if we go, and, and let's remember that the great majority of Black women still live in the South. But they are beginning to move north. This is the beginning of what is called the Great Migration. Uh, now, uh, Martha's grandmother, I believe, stayed in the south because her family was connected to an important historically black college, Bennett College. Um, but as women move north uh, into the big cities, there are significant, of course, they're a minority, but they're growing uh, groups of black women, especially in cities where. Uh, there are uh, Republican parties and in both Chicago and New York uh, when we get to the state level to ratification and also to the effort to pass these state constitutional amendments black women are a significant force now they press themselves into the movement they're not always welcome but they have votes to offer and therefore they are brought in on strategic grounds I believe what Martha means is that the campaign, you know, I can't speak for her, but what I've learned from her is that it's important to say that the campaign for political equality for women uh, is not really complete until the 1960s um, when um, the Voting Rights Act is. Then, of course, it is renewed now uh, with such terrible, terrible obstacles placed Uh, in the face of uh, uh, of voters, uh, voters of color, and uh, to women who are so important.
1: Okay. So I want to pick up on this by um, asking about the centennial itself, the commemorative moment that we face. Martha Jones says, "I, I, I don't feel I can celebrate. Do you feel this is a moment to celebrate? And I guess what is packed into that question is, how do you really assess uh, the flow of history, the movement since 1919, 1920? How do you you chart that arc? Um, Has it bent toward justice or has it been much more meandering?
2: When we talk about an arc bending to justice, we do not mean uh, a uh, consistent rainbow-shaped arc. So yes, of course, like all justice movements, social justice movements, it bends in that direction, but it is a very long uh, arc. So um, I'm often asked, well, what it was, you know, was it all that important? Uh, I was being, uh, I was writing an article and uh, the editor uh, wrote, described the constitutional amendment as a mere piece of paper, I objected. Um, If we want to know how important the 19th amendment is without saying that it nor the 15th amendment on which it was based nor the 26th amendment which has the same language about 18 year olds um did not automatically like um like a brilliant prize not a brilliant prize like um a magical instrument change history uh uh So what I now feel I can say with great confidence is this election, which we are heading for, tells us how absolutely important the right to vote is. That's what John Lewis said literally on his deathbed. The president of the United States is not putting all his energy into stopping equal economic rights, or even abortion rights. He is putting his energy into stopping the right to vote because that is what keeps people in power or removes them from power. So I think this shows us how important the 19th Amendment was, not as something that magically changed history, but created a potentiality, which it is our obligation as women citizens to defend and make use of.
1: And if we isolate um, the uh, women in that, um, that overall effort to enfranchise all citizens in the civic duty and, and responsibility uh, uh, and right to vote, Uh, where are we at? How do you really assess where this historic movement is at?
2: This is the other part of your question, the arc, 1920. Uh, Something about two-thirds as many women as men voted. Even though the suffrage movement involved thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of women, the great majority of the 29 million women in the United States were naive of politics. And it took, uh, as uh, suffragists knew this, they knew that getting the right to vote was only the beginning. It took as long, or it took another 50 years for uh, the, both the numbers of women in the electorate, the numbers of women in political office, and the concentration of women's votes in certain places to manifest itself. Starting in the 1970s, first of all, the numbers of women begin to exceed that of men in the electorate. Secondly, uh, the uh, women's vote, although women are very different and vote in very different ways, um, as, um, as I heard one of Biden's posters who was focusing on gender say, it was, it was and it now is the case that in any group. Women vote more democratic and um, more liberal and more often than men. Now, white women do not do that as much as black women. uh, uh, Women without college educations do not do that as much as women with college educations. But in each of those groups, gender is significant. The most important groups of women are black women, college-educated women uh, and actually uh, women with advanced degrees whose uh, 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 concentration on the democratic and liberal side of the electorate is, is very significant.
1: So one of the things that um, you've demonstrated, um, and that I'd like to pursue a little bit further, is the intersection of uh, race and gender. Um, you began uh, earlier in the podcast by talking about uh, abolitionism being a font of inspiration for uh, the early suffrage movement, and then the second generation of suffragists um, separating those two or, or turning, in a certain sense, against um, the, uh, the cause of uh, racial equality. And then if we move ahead to the 1960s, we see the civil rights movement, in a certain sense... Uh, preceding and perhaps we might even say spawning the movement, a renewed effort uh, to gain equal rights for women. I'm curious how you see that complex of relations today um, or over the last period of time between the movement for full racial equality and full women's equality. Mindful of the fact that our UCLA law colleague, Kimberly Crenshaw, some 30 years ago, I think, gave us the very language of intersectionality. So how how do these two operate um, now and historically? What's your sort of summary assessment having written the book on the suffrage movement?
2: Well, let me start by saying personally, talk about my own personal history. I started working on this subject in graduate school. It was 1969. And I noticed that it was exactly as you say, it was the period, actually it was the period just when civil rights was turning to black power. Just when the beloved community, which had been so important to women, was turning into one must say a rather masculinist and a, and a and violent form of uh, of um, of uh, racial um, uh, campaigning, it's not the right word empowerment what? effort effort right, um, but I noticed that um, the for me, there was a link that was so obvious that it's sort of not so, so connected from then to the time I was writing that it shaped my whole political, my whole intellectual and scholarly life. Um, I noticed, so it's at this point, it's hard to remember because now the, well, certainly not now, but let's go five years ago. The feminist movement is so much more powerful than the Black rights movement. That has changed with Black Lives Matter. But five years ago, feminism was such a powerful movement. It's hard to remember a time when uh, uh, Black rights was more in the forefront of politics than women's rights. But when I started my work in 1969, that was the case. And I looked back to that moment that we talked about, 1869, literally 100 years before, when uh, women women suffragists felt themselves excluded from a powerful black rights movement and broke off to form an independent political movement. And that was actually the title of my first book, uh, The Emergence of an Independent Women's Rights Movement. Um, Now, in the subsequent years, those relationships between race and gender and our awareness of intersectionality has grown and grown and grown. Um, I think that in the modern, this might get me a little trouble, but the modern feminist movement, which was always white dominated, uh, I do not think can be accused of overt racism. Now, uh, that's not the same as a kind of structural, uh, I guess we would call it structural where uh, black women are, they're, ex- they're part of the movement, but they're uh, not at the in the lead. And it's really not until the 1970s and 1980s that black women begin to voice their own form of feminism. And that begins the period that we're in. Now, I think we're in a period right now where women's rights and women in women's political power, that women of color and particularly black women are in the lead. I think that is clear. Uh, if we go to the women's marches in uh, nineteen and 2017, a thousand years ago, um, black uh, women were extremely, they were prominent in the organization. And if anybody went to a march, they were prominent in the march themselves. Uh, now in the campaign against voter suppression, uh, the great Stacey Abrams has become a national figure. Let's see, Attorney General. I'm not sure.
1: Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, on, on that on that note, I mean, you've brought us right to um, the, the obvious question, which is, how do you assess, assess as an historian, and I, I suppose also for you personally, uh, the prospect that uh, uh, a woman of color could be elected. Vice President of the United States. Oh, David,
2: do you, as a historian, predict the future? I do not. I can. No, talk I, I guess my the... question
1: is: what, what would it? What would it mean? Would it? Would it mark the completion of that arc, um, that historical arc?
2: It wouldn't mark the completion. She would be vice president, uh, and uh, she would be perhaps one of the most important vice presidents. Uh, Joe Biden certainly knows how to use a vice president. I saw a great article in the paper today, which pointed out that all the things that Hillary was accused of are true of Biden with one exception. He didn't do it backwards in heels. Uh, As, uh, as, uh, as, as what's her name? Richards. First name. Ann Richards. Ann Richards said uh, uh, women do everything men do, except they do it backward and in heels. Um, she was talking about Ginger Rogers, I think. Um, but I think I have to say when Hillary Clinton lost the presidency, like a lot of women in my generation, I felt it as a personal blow. I was accused of taking it too personally. I now think, and I wish I could say to her, and I expect she knows this, uh, think of Susan B. Anthony. Think of... Think of Susan B. Anthony. Think of Moses. Uh, she is. Lead, she led her people to the edge. Um, maybe she and I were um, naive to think that that chain that because she she was so um, so competent and so clearly uh, the better person for the job. That that's what would happen. And I think, actually, the insurgence of women into politics that we saw in the 2018 election was in many ways sparked by the discovery, shouldn't have been a discovery, of how much sexism, how powerfully these, these stereotypes, these, I wouldn't even call them microaggressions, they were more than that, were, th- were thrown at her, uh, that were mobilized uh, with great determination by a political party who saw her as a, 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 um, a danger, a major danger, and which worked. And um, I wish I could say to her, um, history, well, whether history does it or not, You, uh, as she said, you broke up in the uh, ceiling, but um, there were reasons in history that you didn't win, and we are now suffering the terrible, terrible consequences of that defeat.
1: And of course, we'll see. Twenty eighteen was different than twenty sixteen, as you suggested. And twenty twenty might be its own course correction, as you suggested at the beginning of of, uh, our conversation. Um, I want to ask, by way of conclusion. Um, a question that you uh, have already touched upon in part, but this is sort of the opportunity for the final summation, which is, what do you think we learn from the past? What do we profitably take from the past? What do you, you take respect from
2: past? To this past?
1: What do you take from this past, for example, that you feel is important for us to carry forward?
2: I would say three lessons. Persistence. It's what I was just talking about with respect to Hillary. Uh, A defeat at any one moment must be uh, accommodated, not accommodated, must be accepted and become a fuel for the next step. So as uh, Elizabeth Warren would say, persistence. Uh, Secondly, uh, as I said before, uh, although we are often told that the right to vote isn't that important, or it isn't that important for any one person, or as I'm told when I went door to door, it isn't that important in California. Um, It is. And when things are really, really at stake, the powers uh, mobilized against full voting rights, equal rights to all citizens to vote, which was at the core of the women's suffrage movement. They are mobilized against that. And finally, I would say, and this is the kind of lesson, a a, a negative lesson from the suffrage movement, how important it is recognizing the limits of any political, of any historical movement to create and maintain uh, and nurture coalitions of women. So those are my three lessons.
1: Thank you, Ellen, for joining us on Then and Now. It's really been a pleasure having you with us.
2: Well, I've always enjoyed this. This is not the first time we've had this conversation, David, but each one of these conversations is a true pleasure.
1: And, and thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter@history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N, history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a safe and healthy day.
0: Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at LuskinHistory. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.